0: It's Tuesday, November 24th. Welcome to Fullery. I'm Chris L Joining me in studio once again from Motley Fool Rule Breakers and Supernova, David Kretzman and Aaron Bush. Gentlemen. Good to be back. Day two of millennials and investing. We're going to talk about uh, how to fill out that portfolio. We're going to talk specific stocks, investing strategies, industries, and the question we always get, which is, when do I sell? this stock and before we get to the email, again, we got so many great email from listeners. this was just fantastic. Before we get to the email, I do want to mention I just want to start with something I mentioned from time to time on Market Flory, which is the sleep factor that I think as an investor, if you're starting out, you want to be able to sleep at night. and as we talked about yesterday, for a lot of people, just having that S; p 500 index fund, they're fine. They've got their four hundred one k plan. They're fine. They're, it's like no, my money's safe. I just want to sleep at night. I'm not interested in stocks. But I think if you are interested in stocks, the the sleep factor still applies, doesn't it? Definitely, especially
1: when you're starting out. But like at all stages of your you know investing you know lifespan, you definitely want to sleep at night. We
0: always encourage sleeping. Sleep, <laughs> sleep is healthy. Sleep is good. Yes. Have you? I mean, I, I've been investing longer than you guys have. I know. I've had at least one stretch in my life where I was literally losing sleep over a stock that I owned. I was awake in the middle of the night, and I was like, i got to sell this thing. Uh, and it wasn't even a stock that was going down. It was a small biotech. I had owned it for about six months. It was up 30%. But for some reason, it was just stuck in my brain, I don't know what they do! I, I can't <laughs> figure this business out! Have you ever had a stock where you're just like, i got to sell this thing because I'm not really sure what's going on? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I
2: don't think it ever caused me to stay awake at night, but definitely one of my biggest learning periods was the financial crisis, and I owned AIG, oh. Bank of America, Merrill <laughs> Lynch. So like, <laughs> it That's was brutal. You could say it was pretty bad, and fortunately, I I bailed before a lot of the bad stuff kind of hit the fan. But yeah, I.
0: But you was, just you know what you just reminded me of something and. Kretzmann, you mentioned Warren Buffett yesterday, but Aaron, you just reminded me of of Buffett's line that his biggest learning as an investor was mastering his temperament. Mm -hmm. And you want to invest in good businesses. Leadership is important. We look at business leaders here, but if you haven't mastered your temperament as an investor, you're going to be in trouble and you're going to do badly. So the fact that you at a very young age, were able to master your temper. Because, let's face it, I'm sure there were plenty of investors, I know there were investors, who came out of the financial crisis and just sort of washed their hands of the Mm -hmm. stock market, I'm out. So, the fact that you stayed in it is a good thing.
2: Yeah, probably the best trait you can have as an investor is patience, for one, but
0: also just rationality. Mm All right, let's get to the email from listeners. Uh, Stock-specific questions from Thomas Tiedman. With 40-plus years of compounded returns ahead of me, which is such a great... Bravo! Hey Bravo! That's great that that that's how he's thinking. Uh, Would you personally try to build out the GE, Costco's, and Markel's of the world first, and then slowly dip into those high-growth, Foolish companies, or would you start with riskier, higher-growth companies and add some steady growers as you build out your portfolio? Great question. And as we talked about yesterday, when you're starting out, the goal at least initially should be, get ownership stakes in 10 to 15 companies, build out that portfolio, and keeping in mind that one person's risk tolerance is different from another, you're about the same age as this guy, he's 26, you're about the same age. How did you start building out your portfolio? Did you say, I'm going to anchor a few steady Companies like General Electric and Costco, I know they're not going to go anywhere. Or did you just go risky all the way?
1: My approach, as the risky twelve-year-old investing, <laughs> was buying. You know, I think about ten or fifteen uh, stocks that that were in the Molly Fool Stock Advisor service. So these were stocks that David and Tom Gardner, our co-founders here at the Fool, um, you know, they had recommended. But in general, I think the precursor to that, rather than thinking large or small or risky or you know whatever. Uh, should you, you should just understand the companies, or you should understand why you're buying the stock? Don't just buy it because someone else said they're buying. Because when we're talking about the sleep factor, if you understand the business, then. You might not lose as much sleep or any sleep if it's down if the stock is down 10% or something because stocks will be volatile even if they're bigger companies. But yeah, in general, I think as you're starting out, yeah, go for some of the, the larger, stabler companies, just uh, get familiar with the process, uh, make sure you understand those companies. And then as you get more comfortable with those bigger companies, which can be kind of a nice foundation to a portfolio, then I think you can venture into maybe some of the smaller, faster growing, and you know potentially
0: riskier companies as well. How do you think about portfolio balancing? Because, let's face it, there are a bunch of different ways you, to do it. You can look at it by market cap. I want to mm-hmm. have half my companies be large cap, half be small cap. Some people do it by industry. Uh, I want to make sure I have a little bit of an energy stock in my portfolio. I want a little bit of tech, a little bit of consumer goods. How do you think about it?
2: Uh, that's a good question. I. Kind of all of the above in a way. I don't have any specific formula. I mean, really, I just keep it super simple. I just try to find awesome industries. There are awesome companies, and those companies are across all industries. Um, And then just over time, the diversification tends to happen automatically. I think that's what a lot of us find. And then in terms of just kind of balancing, I actually make it my goal to become as unbalanced as possible. And that isn't doing anything at the front, that's, that's putting in maybe about the same amount of money in each um, stock I'd choose at the beginning. But I hope that you know maybe one or two of those is going to come on to have huge returns that then throws off the allocations in the portfolio. And it's really going to be those very few companies that drive the majority of returns in most cases.
0: We got an email from longtime listener Andy Sorensen in Redwood Falls, Minnesota, uh, with some great ideas, one of which was, and you touched on this, David, buy what you know. You want to know what's in your portfolio. You want to know the answer to the two questions that uh, David Gardner, our company co founder, mentions from time to time, which are pretty basic. How does this business make money? And how are they going to make more money in the future? And I think if you just start looking at businesses through that lens, you know, that's, um, if you can't answer those questions, then maybe it's time to move on to other stock ideas. If
1: you can't draw out how the company makes money with a crayon, then then you probably want to move on to something else. Especially when you're starting out. But and and, and I think it's also buying what you know. It's not just something to say. Like there's actually, I think it's a great investing approach because uh, a lot of the the uh, greatest you know stock performers over the past ten, twenty years, Amazon, Starbucks, Netflix, Apple. Monster Beverage, all of these have been great investments, and th- those are the companies that are providing the services and products that a lot of us use and love you know, on a daily basis. So, at the very least, uh, look at what you know and look at the, the products and services that you like. There's a good chance the companies behind those products might be you know, wor- worth uh,
0: considering as far as an investment. From Stephen Kinsey at Bowling Green State University. Go Falcons! Uh, I'm 23 and love the show. Started investing a lot younger, thanks to my parents. Right now, my largest holding is Exxon Mobil. I use the oil downturn to pick up shares of a company I view as shareholder-friendly. So, my question is, I'm a buy-and-hold investor. Can millennials invest in oil and gas stocks for the long term? Yes. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Go for
2: it. Yeah, you, you definitely can. Nothing is stopping you from doing that. Um, I think when you look at oil and gas, you should just look at it as you would any other industry. You're looking for, first of all, a great company, so a company with strong financials, talented management, competitive advantages. I think Exxon probably fits the bill on on all of those. Pretty reliable. Yeah, yeah. and then and then of course you do need to think about the industry too, because it's kind of systems thinking, looking looking at everything, um, and and so I'm generally hesitant when it comes to commodity related investments. Um, it's just a, li- a bit different. But I mean, it's clear oil and gas aren't going anywhere anytime soon. I do think there will probably be a drastic shift in the landscape, but there still probably will be businesses that still do well. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, if you see great opportunities in the oil and gas space, there's nothing stopping you from investing in those.
0: It's a cyclical industry, and this past 12 months really has not been great. It's hurt. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean, it's tough when you're trying to
1: time the bottom. So, like, really, what you you don't want to just be trying to time the bottom. You want to be finding great companies that have their share prices might be temporarily depressed, but these are companies Mm -hmm. that will be able to continue operating. You just want to be careful with some of these, uh, you know, drillers and you know, oil explorers things like that, because a lot of them do have a lot of debt. So it's sometimes can be questionable how you know if oil prices do stay down for a long time some of these companies might
0: have a really hard time.
2: Yeah, and there's also no I mean for people that don't want to invest in oil and gas, they like you don't have to. There's plenty of opportunities elsewhere.
0: Yeah. From Garth Curtis in Clinton, New York, what role should dividend paying blue chip stocks play in my portfolio? I'm only 23, and I know that a lot of folks say I should be in high growth stocks because of the length of my time horizon. However, isn't it true that dividend-paying stocks outperform others in the long run? Also, won't the compounding of the dividend provide me a nice return?" Great question. And, yes, there are certainly studies that indicate dividend-paying stocks outperform non-dividend-paying stocks in the long run. But it's interesting, because over the last five, ten years or so, the, I guess the image of dividend-paying stocks has been broadened, because of companies like Apple, frankly, coming out and paying mm-hmm. a dividend. I mean there was there was a time when it was just sort of the, you know, the very old businesses. We mentioned ExxonMobil, that's in that group, Johnson and Johnson, that sort of thing. But certainly more companies are paying dividends now.
1: Yeah, and I think you, you don't want to necessarily only look at it from the perspective of which companies are paying a big dividend today. You want to be thinking about which companies will be able to pay a big dividends in ten or twenty years, especially when you're twenty three. Uh, I mean, your, your investing time horizon you know, is three, four, or five decades, so you want to be thinking about companies like Starbucks or Chipotle, companies that are churning out a lot of cash right now. And Starbucks actually does pay a little dividend right now, but look at a company like Chipotle. They're generating a ton of cash, but right now, their best use for the cash is to build more restaurants and expand globally and invest in new concepts like Pizzeria Locale and Shop House. But 10, 20, 30 years down the line, Chipotle's there's going to get Believe it or not, there will be a time when we don't need more Chipotle's around, and but the, those restaurants will still be generating a lot of cash. So, you know, I think it's a pretty safe bet that you know, ten or twenty years from now, Chipotle will probably have a, a nice dividend. So you also want to look at it from that perspective, especially when you're young and have such a long time to invest.
2: Yeah, and I think what matters most, you can kind of look at this. And just say what matters most is getting total returns, and that's defined by capital gains that you get from the stock going up plus the dividend yield. Mm-hmm. And the yield can have, you know, a good part of returns in some companies. But uh, as David mentioned, with companies like Chipotle, um, they can excel for many years without paying a dividend because they're um, reinvesting back in the business and generating tremendous returns for shareholders along the way, over all of those years. Yeah. And
0: one little nuts and bolts thing that I'll add is, when you uh, own shares of a di- dividend-paying stock, you want to make sure you you figure out, what do you want to do with that dividend? Because it can it can go into your account in the form of cash, mm-hmm. or it can be automatically reinvested so that you are getting partial shares of that stock. So, just think, okay, do I want the cash, or do I want more shares of Company X?" And just that's just one more little logistical thing you need to take care of. From Jeff Leith in Northern Virginia, I have questions about options. I started my portfolio a few years ago, but don't know what kind of volume or share counts I should have before starting to dabble with options. Any help on this would be great. Um, I, I, I'll just offer up one thing on options, because I think for a lot of people, options are something that they're not interested in. And we have an option service here at The Motley Fool run by Jeff Fisher. Uh, I'm not here to plug the service. I will simply say this, the, the popular image of options is that of frenetic trading. I, I, I've yet to turn on CNBC or Bloomberg television and see someone who is identified as, uh, with the word options, that the word trader didn't come right after it. Mm-hmm. And there are ways to invest with options that are, frankly, just very basic and boring. I mean, Jeff Fisher, the way he invests with options, he's just you know, just doing sort of writing puts, uh, one move. So, I think, uh, you know, when you ask, what role should options play in my portfolio, I think the answer for most investors is small. Small, it's probably a small role and you
1: don't even necessarily need it like you you can do well in stocks without options like you no know, uh, David and Tom Gardner you know are co-founders at the fool they, uh, neither of them actually trades options or at least David Gardner doesn't i don't think Tom does either but and i think all of us here at the table you know we've been investing 10 plus years neither of us yeah. use options so you don't have to feel like you're missing out you know on something with options but if you learn learn about it and you feel like it's something you know you're willing to take the risk and go with that approach then certainly look into it
0: Final question from Nate. No last name, just Nate. My question as a millennial is how and when to sell in general. I get the long time hold, but is it ever appropriate to take profits on good performers? And also, how do you know when to get out of a loser stock? <laughs>
1: <laughs> the age old question. It
0: is the age old question because, it, you know, w- selling a winner. Is in some ways a lot easier because you can look at it. Some people look at it in terms of, well, gosh, this stock is now 40% of my portfolio. I'm going to sell some of it and I'm going to buy other shares or whatever. Um, you know, David Gardner always says the time to sell is when you have a better place for your money. That mm-hmm. could be to pay for college education, buy a house, take a vacation, put it in a different stock. But the you know, so the the selling the winners is a little bit easier, but I'll start with you, Aaron. How do you know when to sell a loser? How do you know when a loser is a loser?
2: Yeah, that's hard. and I I think, I think selling, to me at least, is harder than buying. Oh, yeah. so, and it's something that we all get bad at over time. But I think one piece of it is, when you buy a company, you have an investment thesis in it. You think this is going to happen and this is why. The, the stock will go up over time as the company performs. And if you start seeing that, that thesis not come true, That's generally a sign that you need to rethink something, and maybe you can come up and change your thesis a bit, and it still be bullish. But if it points to something completely different, that might be a sign um, to move on, Um, because companies really can flop, Um, or if management proves untrustworthy. Um, But I think a lot of it too just boils down to to just if you kind of look across your companies that you own, maybe you have 15 or 20 stocks or something like that, and something um, is down 50%, you look into it and realize that the company itself is in very bad condition. Just look at your other 14, and you might see, like, man, I wish I had more Chipotle, or man, I wish I had more Disney. And really, if you compare those two, it just kind of turns into a no-brainer decision. Like, yeah, of course I want to sell this company to buy more Disney. Like That just makes sense. So, that's kind of how I think about some of it.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's important. Like, you don't have to sell everything all at once. For me personally, my biggest mistake uh, as an investor, and as you know, it, it is selling my winners, my biggest winners. So when I was in college, I'm like, okay, I need to pay, to, you know, uh, room and board, you know, different things like that. I went to my biggest winners. I Went to Monster. I went to Netflix. I went to Chipotle, and I sold you know portions of those. Those went on to be become still my the, the best stocks in my portfolio over the next like five years or so. Um, so, a lot, of, a lot of times, if you find yourself in a position where you're forced to raise cash, I would look first to your losers because a lot of times your winners will keep on winning over the long term. Uh, but yeah, like, like Aaron said, uh, what really counts is the underlying business. So, if the underlying business doesn't really reflect <laughs> your original thesis, then I think that that's a good uh, reason to consider selling.
2: Yeah, and let me reinforce this one last point, and that is that people tend to get emotional and kind of think that they have a loser when the stock goes down. Mm-hmm. But it's very important to be looking less at the stock and more at the business, because sometimes there is a discrepancy between the two. And when you think a stock is a loser and you should be selling, it might actually be the best time to be buying.
1: Especially when you're looking at like short-term movements of the oh, stock.
0: yeah. yeah. And you, Aaron, you touched on management, and I think that's that's worth dwelling on for just a moment because Warren uh, Warren Buffett has the line about how I like to invest in businesses that are so good they can be run by an idiot because someday there's a chance an idiot will actually be running that business. At the end of the day, though, human beings are running these businesses. So yes, you want to look at an industry. You want to look at a company's place in that industry. But you also want to spend a couple of minutes looking Mm -hmm. at, who's the person running this thing? Mm -hmm. And what is he or she, what is his or her track record? What kind of team uh, is around the CEO and the leadership? Because we've mentioned Netflix a couple of times. There was a moment what was it? Two, three years ago, the the Quik, the, yeah. the Quickster debacle, where Reed Hastings, the founder and CEO, came out with um, a the one-two punch of a price increase and also we're spinning off the DVD by mail business and it's going to be a separate company and we're going to call it Quickster. And there were investors who looked at that and said, "This guy's nuts," and they they wrote him off. And now we look back on that and look at the way Reed Hastings has grown that business and it the further we get away in time from that moment the more it looks like just a momentary blip in Reed Hastings judgment because now you can look and go oh okay yeah other than that one moment he's been a phenomenal leader mm-hmm.
1: yeah I mean just w- with stocks just always remember when you buy a stock you are a part owner in that company so act from from that rather than like an emotional reaction to to the share price movement so always remember that you are an owner and if you act from kind of that, perspective, then then I think you'll make some smart decisions.
0: Alright, before we wrap up, two things to get to. And the first is, let's give our listeners a stock idea, because uh, a lot of our listeners have 40 years ahead of them, 40, 50 years of compounding returns, maybe even longer, depending on how old they are. So, give me one stock, one company that you feel good about. You know what? I'd feel good putting a little bit of money into this stock, and check back in 2055, and I'm going to feel really good about this. Aaron Bush, you're up first.
2: I'll go with Disney. Why? I think part of it is just recognizing, you can look back 40 years and recognize that a lot of the brands that they created back then are still strong today. And then just with entertainment, um, they, they have some of the strongest IP in the world, and it just continues to grow and get stronger. And it's something that I think will probably resonate with people over the course of time, pretty timeless.
0: Since we just talked about management, Bob Iger's run as CEO of the Walt Disney Company has been phenomenal. And I think whenever he steps down, what is it? I think it's 2017 now, maybe 2018, mm-hmm. whenever Soon. he steps down, there are business schools around the world that are going to have a course dedicated to what an amazing job he did growing that business. And as a Disney shareholder, I have to say, that's The only thing that frightens me about that (laughs) company is, holy cow, has he left? At some point, he will leave enormous shoes to fill. But tough act to follow. Tough act to follow. But 2055, you're feeling good about Walt Disney. I think so. All
1: right, Mm -hmm. David. I'll I'll go with Starbucks. I was thinking about Chipotle, but I'm going to go with Starbucks. Uh, I mean. You know, coffee—it's an addictive product. Uh, people around the world are consuming Starbucks. They're still opening stores worldwide, and then they also have kind of a more fledgling operation with Tivana. Uh, and there are actually more tea drinkers in the world uh, compared to coffee drinkers. So, if you just imagine if Starbucks can even do half of what it's done for coffee drinkers with tea drinkers, then the company still has a lot of room to expand over the next 40 years. So, Starbucks is one I feel pretty good about. But again, the Succession of you know Howard Schultz you know the the founder and CEO of Starbucks and actually not the founder but he's been with Starbucks since it's expanded uh, you know th- that's also a tough hack also to some
0: big shoes to fill yeah
1: so you know there's always there's going to be risk with any company there's no sure thing but Starbucks and Disney I think pretty good choices. Mm-hmm. I
0: don't know what kind of technology we're going to have in 2055, but I'm pretty sure coffee is still going to be coffee in 2055. <laughs> Maybe it'll be like a, a chip. You
2: know. <laughs> no. What's the fun in that? I don't
0: want I don't <laughs> want coffee a chip, I want it in my cup. Um, I want to thank our listeners for all the great questions. And uh, if you are a first-time listener to Market Foolery, thanks for checking us out. Um, we have other podcasts here at the Motley Fool, and they're all free. So, so by all means, check those out. And here's one more thing that's free before we wrap up. Uh, it's a free copy of our ebook, The Motley Fool Guide to Beginning for Investors. Um, it's 75 pages. It's one of the best-selling investing ebooks on Amazon, and it's com- it is now completely free for you. Just go to fool.com. Slash beginners. That's fool.com slash beginners. I'll put the URL in the description of, of this podcast. You can just click on that link. But um, it's yours for free because, uh, as I said yesterday at the beginning, our mission here at the Motley Fool is to help the world invest better. And uh, if you're just starting out, um, you're part of that process. So we, we want you to invest better. Uh, and this ebook is, is one way to start that. So fool.com slash beginners. Uh, thanks again for the questions. Uh, if you have if you have feedback, you can drop us an email. Or if you have more questions, drop an email marketfullery at fool um, Let us know how we did on this two part millennials and investing. Uh, I always like to say if you think, uh, you know, if you have suggestions for us for something we can do better, please tell us. If you if you like what we're doing and you think we're doing a good job please tell others. Tell your friends. It's a free podcast. Tell your friends. You can rate us on iTunes and Stitcher. Um, thanks for checking us out, Aaron Bush. David Kretzman, guys, thanks so much for being here.
1: Thanks, Chris. Thanks.
0: As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.